0: You heard the one about the drug-addicted actor who starts his own interior design company while living with his two ex-boyfriends and then gets diagnosed with a rare head and neck cancer which leaves him with facial paralysis. So he decides to deal with it by parting on crystal meth while still in radiation. And on top of that, he starts dating a new boyfriend, but he becomes financially, morally and spiritually bankrupt, so he attempts suicide. No? You haven't heard that one? Well then. Fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But don't worry, there is a happy ending. Hi, I'm Kevin Steinberg, and you're listening to Frankly Kev. You're listening to an episode from Falling Through the Cracks, a creative memoir. And this episode is titled, Fuck Cancer. Can I say that? Maybe I should say cancer. I share about having a rare head and neck cancer, not once, but twice. Adenoid cystic carcinoma. I'm currently living with it and managing very well. I've been living with it for four four years now. It's stage four. I've got 12 malignant tumors in my lungs. However, I'm asymptomatic. To see me on the street or at the gym, you'd never know anything was even going on. However, I'm not a poster boy for cancer, nor am I even a role model. And at one time, I was in the throes of active addiction while managing my cancer. You know what? I'm going to shut up now and get out of my way and let me tell you the story. My cancer story started in 2006. I was scratching myself, the left side of my neck, right below my ear, that's where your parotid gland is, and it felt weird. When I pressed the other side, I didn't feel any discomfort at all. But when I pressed even a little bit on the left, I felt discomfort and I thought, huh, that's different. So I followed this for a little bit. I told my dentist about it. I thought perhaps I needed a root canal because. The way it progressed was that i started to get these electric jolts when i would have nuts or chips stuck in my teeth then i would chomp down and something would press something and just send this electrical jolt through my body and i thought i need a root canal also i found it a little difficult to rest my head in the crook of my hand when I watch TV the way you do when you're laying on your side. And I could only do it on my right side, not my left. So I was living in Boston, Winnipeg and Toronto, not at the same time, one after the other, because this story, the beginning of the story takes place from 2006 to 2009. And I kept telling my dentist that something's wrong and my dentist did everything he could Filled a filling, filed down my teeth, cleaned my teeth. I didn't need a root canal. Finally, he said, dude, I think this is a medical thing. You got to talk to your doctor. So I thought, oh, okay. I just really thought because of the location of the discomfort that it was a dental thing. I was seeing a new doctor and I brought it up at my first intake. He said something like, if you come back two more times on the third time, If it's still bothering you and if the discomfort increases, I'll send you for an ultrasound. And it did, this was uh, Christmas 2008. The discomfort had evolved to a point that I could not find any angle to even rest my head comfortably on a pillow. So I thought, whatever's happening, I did not think it was cancer. I was not worried. I just thought, you know, something's going on and I should get it looked after. So he sent me for an ultrasound. And the place that he sent me for an ultrasound was out of a horror movie. It's kind of a dilapidated medical facility. This was my impression. And I knew something was up right away because the technician did the ultrasound and then excused herself and said something to the effect of, "I, I need to go talk to the doctor. I knew right then and there something was up. When I asked her, What did you find? And she said, I'm not at liberty to speak. (laughs) That confirmed that something was up. (laughs) So they sent me to a better facility for another a better ultrasound and a biopsy. And there it was confirmed that I definitely had basically a benign cyst. I, they said surgery at this point is elective. You can have surgery or not. It's your decision. It's it's nothing important or, or dangerous. And I thought to myself, this thing, if I leave it may grow to the size of a watermelon. I don't want to look like a bullfrog. And so I elect to have surgery. I went in for surgery. They closed me right back up and sent me back to my room. And the doctor was there when I woke up and he said, we misdiagnosed this. This is serious. This is a malignant tumor, adenoid cystic carcinoma. Probably we're going to send a sample off to the lab and we're going to fast track you for surgery and hook you up with an oncologist and, and the whole bit. Apparently, they can't operate on you without your consent, even if they know they should. Unless it's immediately life threatening, they can't. This was at Princess Margaret in Toronto. This is one of the best integrated cancer facilities in the world. Even doctors that I mentioned this to in Los Angeles say I couldn't even have found better doctors and better treatments in the USA. Anyways, they fast tracked me. I read up on everything I could now adenoid cystic carcinoma is a very rare cancer. There are about half a million new cases of cancer every year in the US. Of those, 1,200 are adenoid cystic carcinoma, so it's quite rare. At that time, 2009, not a lot was known. I went on the internet, I found whatever I could and basically it said that this cancer is a slow growing cancer that people could have it for decades but once it decides to move it's aggressive and it it travels through the nerve system not the blood or or lymph system they didn't know at the time what caused it they actually do know a lot more now apparently there's a mutation on the notch one gene and now the notch family are receptors and notch one is a member of that family and it provides instructions for making a protein and these receptor proteins have specific sites into which certain other proteins fit like keys into locks the uh, notch one it can turn a cell into a tumor cell or a tumor suppressor I don't believe I had this mutation because I wanted to enter a study group for a new medication and they did a test and I didn't pass. (laughs) I guess my notch was acting right or wrong or (laughs) however you look at it. My gene was just notch right. I quickly want to mention that when I was researching what little was available back in 2009, they already knew at that time that this cancer metastasizes to various locations, and the first location it metastasizes to the lungs, and roughly about 10 years after first occurrence. This comes into play later on, and we'll get to that. I'm going to back up. When I was a kid, my grandparents, my mom's parents both died of cancer. I believe my mum's mum had breast cancer that can spread everywhere. My Zeta, my grandfather, had a blood cancer. I don't know if it was leukemia. And that also spread everywhere. I had read as a young kid that cancer skips a generation. And so I thought, oh, OK, when I grow up, I'm going to have cancer. I didn't live in fear or anything like that. I just thought no, it's going to come at some time. So be ready. (laughs) So back to 2009. So I saw an oncologist. I saw a dietitian, a dentist. My surgery was November 24th, 2009. Team of 10 working on me for 12 hours. What they did was they cut a V into the side of my neck. They started from behind my left ear and in front of my ear in a V all the way down my neck to my shoulder. They peeled the skin back and then they could go to work and took out the tumor, the parotid gland and my facial nerve. Now, I also have to back up again because cancer didn't bother me. It didn't frighten me. I didn't think I was going to die from cancer. I just thought I'm young, I'm healthy. The doctors all said, you're young, you're healthy. What bothered me was that the surgery that they were going to do would possibly leave me with a partial paralysis on the left side of my face they said it might it might not happen but be ready for it this scared me this angered me saddened me i cried about this cancer could hit me anywhere in the body scars anywhere you want but don't touch my face maybe it's because i'm a gay man maybe it's because i'm an actor maybe it's because I'm vain in that way. Maybe it's because this is the first thing that people see and judge you on. People liked my face. I liked my face. I had a great smile. I had smiling eyes. I was known to light up a room when I entered it. I didn't want to lose that. I'm a deep thinker. I feel very intensely, but I'm not a model. So I had what I had and it was working for me. That's what bothered me. The other thing that bothered me was I had just started my interior design business and I work hard at what I love and I didn't want to put that aside and I didn't want to lose momentum. I was finishing up a client's job. I had to look for new clients. I figured if I'm going into surgery and radiation and then recovery, I'm going to lose, not only lose money, I'm going to go through any money that I have. And so I asked if I could put off the surgery till springtime. They said that they would not suggest that because it could get a lot worse since this cancer was on the move. So I said, well, what if I don't do anything? I'm just lay down and die. I'll write my memoirs of them Well, my family wasn't having any of that. So I thought, all right, I've got to go through this. But I knew that this facial paralysis would fuck me up for years. And it did. But we'll get to that. Because I was career minded and I like keeping busy, I was up until midnight the night before my surgery. I think I had to check in for 8 a.m. or something. And I was working on a client's project. And my mom, who had flown in from Winnipeg to be with me, said, go to sleep. Put aside your work and go to sleep. <laughs> so I come through the surgery. I'm in the hotel room. Oh. <laughs> I'm in my hospital room, my head is swollen to the size of a basketball. I've got a drainage tube coming. I'm Frankenstein. I've got a drainage tube coming out of my neck. I've got 30 or 40 metal staples in my back, scars on my leg, my calf, my ankle. See what they have to do during surgery because of what they took out. If they didn't build it up again, I would have basically had a crater in my face. So they have to go and get donor tissue, muscle, nerves, whatever from other parts of your body that will uh, replace what they I've taken out. I want to also quickly mention that they went into my calf for a certain ligaments or tendon and it wasn't there. Apparently, as we've evolved, there are certain ligaments and tendons that go away because we don't need them or use them anymore. And as we've evolved from tree climbers, we don't need this it's in our calf. 30% of us don't have it. So I guess I'm one of the more highly evolved of the human species. Go figure that one out. (laughs) So, after my surgery in my hospital room. I was so elated. I had full feeling of my face. But within 24 hours, like a blackout, everything stopped. All the nerves were dead and the left side of my face was paralyzed. I got out of my bed very quickly. And within a day, I was walking around the whole ward. By the end of the week, I was doing laps and they were telling me to slow down. (laughs) Also, when I first came out of this long surgery that was 12 hours, came to out of my anesthetic, the first thing they asked if I had any request and I said yes get my mom she's going to be worried <laughs> I keep remembering details as I tell the story and I remember that there was this hospital or laboratory that was studying adenoid cystic carcinoma and that they were collecting uh, tissue tumors samples from people with ACC and I wanted to send my sample to them but they wouldn't accept it because I was in Toronto when they were in the United States and I thought that was kind of stupid don't you want or need all the help that you can get but maybe it was the travel time that it would have to take to mail it to them or being on dry ice or something and it wouldn't be fresh i don't know i was uh, sent home with a drainage tube i had a nurse for about a month come to visit me maybe three times a week to uh, change the dressing and uh, they gave me two months off to rest and recover from surgery until I started radiation. The surgery was 100% successful with clean margins. But just to be extra safe, they suggested four or five weeks of radiation. Now the radiation, they, so that I wouldn't move around, basically I had reminded me of a hockey net. It's like this mesh crisscrossing plastic that they mold to your body, your face and your shoulders and then pin down during radiation so you can't move around and so they don't hit the wrong place with the radiation. I think they were getting it from six different angles. Very strong bursts of radiation, but very short. I wanted to keep leading as normal a life as possible. And so I signed up for kickboxing classes. I had always wanted to take them. But I found pretty quickly that that wouldn't be a good idea to continue because as people had warned me two weeks after radiation, the effect is accumulative. The fatigue hit me and I thought, "Uh oh, kickboxing is uh, not a safe thing to be taking right now. (laughs) So then I took to my bed kind of like 24 seven. I didn't have a lot of energy, but I did have energy to walk to my radiation appointments. I think it was about 15 minutes away, I was living in Cabbage Town in Toronto, and it was a winter where it wasn't that cold, and there wasn't a lot of snow. Sometimes I would take the streetcar, sometimes I would just walk. However, the radiation left a sunburn in my throat. I consciously tried not to swallow. That's how much it hurt. They gave me some sort of spray, a numbing spray, which didn't work. I couldn't eat anything other than soft or liquid food couldn't eat anything that had flavor spice or herb i was basically on i think insure it's called you know one of those drinks that has all the vitamins and minerals and good stuff that you're you're supposed to have consomme and yogurt and vanilla ice cream and lots of popsicles i was living at the time with two of my exes. Yes, you heard that right. I had two exes. I was in a triad. I was in a relationship with a married couple, and we had broken up but remained friendly, and I was renting the downstairs apartment from them. It was more like a four-story house because from this basement apartment, there were stairs going up into the house separated by a door. The door was usually unlocked, so... They could come down. I could go up at any time. My cancer story has another major element. I'm a recovering drug addict. I have several years clean and sober now. But at the time, I had been in and out of the program since about 2000, 2001. I had been to rehab. I had been to individuals, crystal meth study groups, support groups, individual therapy, group therapy, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, crystal meth anon- anonymous meetings, uh, family and friends New. I have a great support system. Relapse is a big part of my story over the years. There are many periods where I was doing well, life was going great and I was clean and sober. And then there's some periods where things weren't that great, I wasn't doing well, and I would take a tumble. Sometimes my thoughts won out, and sometimes my feelings won out in a good way and a bad way. And it was a constant battle, a constant struggle. For a while there, I was a high-functioning addict in that I hid this, and I was able to go to work and go to the gym. Effects of crystal meth were not showing up on my face, my body, my mental capabilities. I was lying to family and friends. They believed me. If they didn't, they just didn't say anything or challenge me. And drug addicts do not like to deal with life on life's terms and look for escape and look to feel good and not to have to think about anything and numb the emotions. And at the time, I was about 12 years into my drug career, and I was really angry and I was really sad i was also very impatient and not just about my facial paralysis but also about having to put aside my interior design company i loved design i loved being creative i loved filling my day up with my passion i loved solving people's problems and helping them in a creative way during radiation i was a partying i was going to look for drugs and bathhouses place where Men go to find other men to have sex, and you can also find just about any drug you want there. And I knew this, and that's where I went. Looking back on it, it's kind of crazy, because sure, the lights are dim in a bathhouse to create atmosphere and ambiance, <laughs> but there I am with my facial paralysis, with this huge scar down my back with some scars on my legs. And there I am going to have party and have sex. Also this is during cancer treatment. I didn't give a fuck. I was very selfish. And I would miss appointments or I would show up having partied all night, not have slept, twisted and high. I didn't care. And looking back on it, how crazy is that? That this is for the better, betterments of my health. And I had total disregard also to not just for myself, but for the, the doctors and the technicians and the radiologists who took the time to look after me. I scheduled that time. I didn't call in that I was going to be missing. How selfish, how greedy, how disrespectful is that? That they're there for me and I wasn't there for myself, let alone for them. Anyways, got through that. And then I was into my recovery. I had a very, very good friend fly in to be with me and it was great. But when I was alone, I would get depressed. I would get angry. I would get lonely and I would let my uh, drug addiction take over. It took me a couple months to get over the sunburn in my throat and to get my energy back. And I, I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to catering. Catering is something that is I've always done that as paid the bills while I pursued my creative endeavors, but they didn't want me back. I noticed that there was a difference in response to me now. I was great at what I did in catering. I had worked my way up from being a bartender and server to an event manager, and I could tell that I wasn't wanted around now because of how I looked. I didn't ask anyone, but you're around nice people in nice places with nice food. The message I got is who wants to look at that face? (laughs) I didn't pick up again with my interior design company. One, because mentally and emotionally, I was still recovering from cancer and surgery and radiation and with my paralysis. And there was this one couple, these clients who I was working with before my surgery when I had my full use of my face and after surgery. And I noticed that the look on their faces and their energy changed. And maybe it was because they felt like, "Mm, dude, you should be you should be resting and recovering and not working or maybe they couldn't look at my face without staring i don't know and i felt i don't want to go through that over and over and over again and have people turn me down not based on my abilities and my talent but because they don't want to work with someone with a partially paralyzed face and this is what was going through my mind so i noticed on the street whenever i smiled at people they smiled back at me because you knew that's the smile on that guy's face well now when i smiled at people they looked looked at me quizzically. I guess my mouth, part of it was smiling and part of it wasn't. How the world was responding to me had changed. So here's the thing. I am a passionate person about what I do. I'm compassionate. I'm articulate. I'm intelligent. I'm humorous. I'm adventurous. I have great energy. I'm, I'm easy to be around. I have good manners. I had been in various relationships with successful, stable men. I was out to prove that I could have that again. That despite my face, still be attractive, sexy, and someone could see the person that I really am. And so I went online to find someone to date, and we met, went for coffee, and boom. It was on, we were dating. So when I wanted to, I could seize opportunity and I I could go for it. I had full confidence. And then sometimes I, I would flounder. I would lose confidence. I would question myself and question what I was doing, lose my focus. So I'm living with my two exes. I have a new boyfriend who happens to be a flight attendant. So he's away three days at a time here and there. And what do I do? I still run to the bathhouse to do drugs and have sex. So I didn't have any money. I was paying rent with my credit cards. Also, I had gotten a loan to start my interior design business and I was going through that as well. I had nothing. I didn't have work. I didn't have my company. I didn't have money. I was dating this guy who I thought this isn't real because right now I'm like this bird with a broken wing. What if this is this guy's thing that he just needs to, like, look after people? And so I, I ended that I ended that because I moved back to Winnipeg to be with my family. I moved back to Winnipeg to be with my family because I decided to kill myself. A few years before I had started all over again by going to rehab. I had had a stroke from from parting too much and my family was going to have an intervention. My mom came to get me and I flew home from Boston to Winnipeg to go to rehab for three months and to straighten myself out and to do, do some work on myself. I ended up paying for my rehab and I was down to no money. So I stayed home for a year so I could save some money and and also be surrounded by love and support of my family and friends. And I then got to a place where I was good again and left Winnipeg for Toronto to continue with my interior design career and with my life. So I had just been through this starting over and now I had to do it all over again and I thought, I can't do this. I don't have the I don't have the will and I'm just going to say goodbye and check out. And checking out for me is taking sleeping pills and just going to sleep peacefully forever. And I thought I'm going to have a party on the way out. I'm going to go to the bathhouse, I'm going to do drugs, I'm going to have sex with as many men as possible. And then I'm going to take my sleeping pills and I'll be gone. And that's what I did. And I I wrote a suicide note and I took all these sleeping pills. Well, when you're on crystal meth, which is an amphetamine, which is an upper, which is a super high high, you could take a lot of sleeping pills and they're not going to put you to sleep. (laughs) So (laughs) I woke up and went home. (laughs) I don't know how I got home. I don't know how I wasn't hit by a car or a bus. I, I don't know what happened because I kind of remember walking home in the rain or stopping at a drugstore to get Gatorade. I couldn't find my key and knocking on the door to my apartment long enough and loud enough that my ex who lived upstairs heard me and came down, found me shaking and shivering and, and let me in. And I thought, well. <laughs> That's the end of that. I'll never be trying suicide again. I'm obviously meant to live for some reason. I ended up going back home again. Thank God that I could always go back home when I needed to and pulled myself together again. Over the years, because of my facial paralysis, I was embarrassed. I have depression. I have anger issues. And I would do drugs to escape and to deal or to not deal. I thought I was hideous and I look back at pictures, it's so funny when you're in a moment and inside your head and when you're out of that moment and you look back and you go, what the hell was wrong with me? (laughs) People said to me, I don't know what you're talking about because you're Kevin. And I think you're great. And you're as handsome as ever. And I like your crooked smile. I think it's kind of sexy. But you could have a million people tell you how wonderful you are and how how good looking you are and how smart you are. But if you don't believe it, it doesn't matter. I wasn't having success dating. And the only place that I could find companionship and sex was to go to the bathhouse and get high. And, And that's how I coped or didn't cope. And I find. I finally stopped because I used to believe that I always had one more time, one more party left in me, and then I'd be off and running. But physically, I started to feel the effects of doing drugs for for 20 years. And on and off, I started to believe that there is no next time. The next time I'm going to have a heart attack or a stroke and I'm going to die or worse than dying, I'll have a stroke and live, but be paralyzed and stuck in my body and stuck here on Earth and be lucid and not be able to do anything. And that was what brought around the end of drugs. So I'm thankful for that. One other huge thing that comes into play with drug drug addiction is the feeling of loneliness. And for so many years, I felt lonely, and that's also why I did drugs. I need people. I like being around people. I've always lived with people. I come alive around people. When I'm by myself, (laughs) in my own mind, sometimes it's not such a good thing. Uh, Drug addicts might like to isolate, but it's not good for us to isolate. But I truly enjoy People's company. I enjoy parties. I enjoy getting to know people. This is why I'm doing this podcast. I like finding out about people. I like hearing their story. I would rather go to a party and meet someone and spend two hours in a corner with them just talking, and the whole party can just disappear and melt away and go home and never even talk to that person again, not exchange numbers. And that is a valuable time connection to me. I would prefer that over being at a party and meeting 14 different people and being like a social butterfly and just having all of these superficial conversations. You can have that. I'll take meeting the one person and having a conversation of quality. So loneliness. Loneliness is very different than being alone. You can be at Disneyland and you can be lonely. You could be on a vacation at a resort surrounded by people and you can be lonely. I haven't felt lonely for years. Thank God is the way that I feel about myself or life or my connections with with other people. But that has helped a lot. And that has probably been one of the factors to contribute also to me being able to to stop the drug use. I mean, you're always recovering. You're always having to work at it. So four years ago, once you're given the all clear after having radiation, surgery, chemo from cancer, you have to go back generally every six months for blood work and a CT scan to make sure that the cancer hasn't returned. And I think you have to do that for about six years. On my last scan in 2017, after years of them seeing or finding nothing, they saw seven spots. So they called me in for another scan, and they said, oh, no, that was a mistake or a false positive, we don't see anything now. And I thought, great, all right, I'll go on with my life. Well, about a year and a half later, I had kidney stone, and I was in so much pain that I had to go to the hospital. And they did a scan to see if I actually did have kidney stones and they verified I did. But interestingly enough, they said to me, we saw seven shadows in your lungs. And because of your history with cancer, you might want to go get those checked out. So that scan a year and a half ago that they thought was a false positive was really true. It's pretty amazing medicine technology, the result, the things that they find, Uh, same with going back to when they took my my biopsy and misdiagnosed me. I don't know if I have angels on my shoulders. I don't know if it's because of my attitude. I do have a fighter in me. I have survived drug addiction, depression, stroke, cancer, uh, and a whole lot of other stuff. Suicide. And I'm still here. It's a curious thing. Life is very interesting. I'm certainly not better than a lot of people. But for some reason, I pick myself up and go on a lot of life and life's challenges are not about what happens to you, but about how you react to it and what you do with it. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes I haven't reacted well, but Anytime I have been faced with the possibility of death, I have fought for my life. That is my instinct. That is my spirit. I have a very strong spirit that will not let me go. <laughs> it's not my brain because I can get into some negative thinking. But I'm constantly surprised that the things that I have faced and that my mind, my body, something is resilient and and. Maybe it's a little bit of luck. Maybe it's a lot of luck. Bringing us to present day, I go and get a referral for a really great oncologist. This is Dr. Kevin Sher at Tower Hematology. Tower Hematology and all of these doctors, there's about 16 there, I believe, are connected with Cedar sinai So here we are now in present day. And again, I'm not worried. I just don't see cancer for me. I have never feared it. I have never seen it as anything dangerous or deadly. I see it as something I put on my to-do list, roll up my sleeves and figure it out and deal with it. Talk to people, get on the internet, see the specialists I need to see, and let's let's figure this out. My adenoid cystic carcinoma had metastasized to my lungs. I had seven cancerous malignant tumors there. They, well, stay it's stage four. Stage four is not so much one, two, three, four, oh, one, you're not gonna die for you're gonna die. Stage four is how far it travels from the original site of the occurrence. My oncologist, Dr. Scheer, said that we're going to have scans every four months and watch it. He said, you're still pretty young. You're resilient. You're strong. You're not having any symptoms. I don't have, didn't have a, a cough or anything related with any kind of issues with the lungs. Uh, I had my strength, my agility, my stamina. And I said, hey, I'm all for that. If you're saying I don't need to get anything done and let's watch it because sometimes it's worse to do something when nothing's going on, that sometimes they can sit there for decades and and people live with them. So I'm like, great. Anyways, the date came, I started to have pain about a year and a half after I started seeing him. Apparently the tumors were pressing on nerves and the nerves are what was causing pain in my body on my right all on my right side and one t- tumor in my ninth posterior rib I didn't know that tumors could live in a rib there was so much pain in my ribs that I could not sneeze, burp, laugh, hiccup all of those were painful held myself back from sneezing because I thought I was going to blow up a rib and when I would laugh I would hold my ribs. So I said, we have to do something. And I was actually pushing for something called brachytherapy, which is successful for prostate cancer. They insert the radiation through a needle. It's about uh, grain size or rice size. And they insert it into or right beside the tumor. So it's working at a very micro local level. Well, one hospital, the doctor wanted to do it, but the hospital didn't accept my insurance. Another doctor advised against it because I now have 12 tumors and one tumor is is right up against my esophagus. And he said it would be really dangerous because that could put a hole in my esophagus and that could be deadly. So I had chemo. Now chemo is minimally successful to not successful for people with ACC. I don't know why. It's worked for a few but not very many because I couldn't get brachytherapy. I got five rounds of therapy for that one tumor in my rib and that helped. Uh, It was fracturing my rib. I challenged my doctor, why do you want to do chemo when it's not successful or minimally successful. So he sent me some data that was had that small success rate thing. And I had read in one of my Facebook groups, people with my type of cancer, that a couple of people had success with it. So I thought, well, I have to do something. And since I can't get brachytherapy or I need this pain to go away. So I went through 11 rounds of chemo spread out over about four months and the pain did dissipate. It came back, though, pretty quickly pains. Started coming back, the tumors were growing again only after two months. We thought maybe it would be at least a year. Two months later, they're growing back and the pain is worse than ever. And I ask for painkillers to help me get through the day. And I finally say, I need radiation and I need it now because I do not want to live with pain and I do, want, do not want to live with, on painkillers. I just finished three weeks of radiation. I have zero fatigue. I have zero side effects. 90% of my pain is gone. Through this whole time, I kept working, going to the gym. Uh, I kept socializing. I think the medical industry or and the media as well as the fundraising community, make it like every cancer story is death or a horror story or terrible. I am one of many people who are living with cancer and who are living a good life. And you don't hear a lot from us. I'm not talking about this to get attention. I'm not looking to get a reward. I'm not angry about having cancer. I'm not bragging about having it, but I'm sharing my story in the hopes of informing entertaining and inspiring people to share their stories about what they've gone through and we can all inspire each other and help each other by sharing our stories and sharing our truth and embracing life, not howling at the moon and railing at the sun, crying over it. I love to laugh. I probably laugh a lot because life is hard and life can suck. And if I didn't laugh, I don't think I'd be here without laughter. I laugh at myself. I I laugh at others if it's appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Laughter is truly the best medicine. It's got me through a lot. I have also used it as a shield and defense. It's my Captain America shield. Because when you've got laughter, people, you can't fight with that. What are people going to come back with when you laugh? I wish you all the very best, the healthiest lives possible. And if you do, Ask for help when you need help, but also advocate for yourself. Do the research. If you've got something serious, you know, talk to people. Confront it. Find something to laugh about it. Maybe while you're not in it, but when you have some distance from it. So while you can be everything that you can be. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. Hope you got something from this. If you want to leave any questions for me, leave comments, say what you like, say what you didn't like, say what works, what doesn't work. There's a comment box right there for you. Thank you very much. You have a good day. Thanks for listening to Frankly Kevin, My Cancer Story. If you'd like to find out more about some of the topics I mentioned, you can find links on this episode's page on the franklykev.com website at Falling Through the Cracks, a creative memoir, Fuck Cancer. Maybe I should say bleep, cancer. There's a comment box there for you to fill in if you'd like to share your thoughts about the episode, write a review, or even ask a question. More episodes can be heard on the franklykev.com website, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Spotify, and various other listening platforms around the internet. If you'd like to help independent artists like myself bring you the content you want to hear, then please go to the donate page at franklykept.com. Every dollar counts and your donation is greatly appreciated. If you have a story you'd like to share that you feel others may benefit from, that. Could be informative entertaining inspiring and you want to be a guest on the show then you can go to the contact page at franklykev.com and fill out the form or you can even email me directly at kev kev at franklykev.com thanks again for joining me and remember live simply dream big be kind love hard and laugh often it may not be original but it is true yeah you take care until next time